Oh, my heavens. Thank you all. You don't realize what home is until you're away from it. I'm, I'm one of the ministers here, but before that, I'm a member. Uh, and uh, that, that means a lot. This is my family, and you really miss it. You know, when we're here stuck with one another, you see a lot of bad stuff that you don't like, see people you want to smack, stuff like that. You know, but then when you're away, you can't wait to get back and give those very people a hug. It's just an amazing thing. So, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder. So for now, my heart is filled with fondness, but I think that'll wear off pretty, you know, it's only Sunday. And the Lord really provided for us. Uh, I went to care for my mother, who's going to be 99, and my sister was her primary caregiver. But my sister has come down with Parkinson's and lung issues and heart issues, can't care for her. And then my oldest sister had her leg amputated and has pneumonia and all the rest. So uh, my mother did not want to come back here because she would be apart from my needy sisters. And so uh, we told her, you know, Mom, uh, uh, the girls will not get the care they want unless they know you're being cared for. So... Uh, you know, you've got to do this for them. And that worked. <laughs> Man, because my mother, she's this big. You know, um, she's just a little tiny lady. And uh, good to see you, Daniel. Thanks for coming. Uh, Daniel, we, we start a little earlier. Uh, just... Anyway, uh, she's... Yeah, that's right, the better half. The faithful one. <laughs> anyway... Uh, she thought that was a good idea, and she's come, and uh, we have her at a wonderful assisted li living place, and I'm finding out so many people there have children here at Sagemont. Uh, just a, uh, uh, Jeannie Fouth's mama is there. Uh, let's see. A lady in the last class, Trish, her mama is there. Barbara Gage. I don't know if you remember Dr. Freddie Gage, who passed away not too long ago. His, his wife is there, and it was just a lot of fun to see the people. And I was able to say the same things to different ones because nobody hears you over there. So they think they're hearing you for the first time, which is really, really good. One sermon is all you need. You know that. Um, anyway, thank you for praying for us. And uh, we're just grateful for the facility. And the other reason I got my mother to come is I told her I would introduce her to a wealthy cowboy. Or that kind of thing. So, if you are one, uh, we're taking names. <laughs> well, folks, we are in Genesis chapter 38, and I am persuaded that Brother Chuck did this to me on purpose. I just have to get this off my chest. I believe he just timed it so I would get Genesis chapter 38. He gets the easy, he gets stuff like John 3.16. And he sticks me with it. You will see this chapter, my heavens. It is, uh, let's just say you don't need HBO. You can get it in Genesis 38. I'll show you. Look what it says, verse 1. It came about at that time. What does that mean? Well, uh, it's the time recorded in Genesis 37. Joseph was uh, betrayed by his brothers. An extreme case of sibling rivalry. They wanted to kill him, you know, or let him die. Judah took the initiative in saying, I got a better plan. Let's sell him. So there's a caravan of folk passing by, and they sold Joseph to them. This was Judah's idea. Judah uh, probably now is feeling a little guilty. You know, most of us would be prone to do that if we sold one of our siblings. It has a way of catching up with you. So it says this, it came about at that time that Judah departed from his brothers. See, that's what you do when you're guilty about a relationship issue, but you don't want to resolve it appropriately. You just sever the connection to the relationship. So he said, every time I hang out with my brothers, I'm reminded about what we did. I know I won't hang out with my brothers. And that's what he does. He departs from them. And he goes to the wrong place. It says he visited a certain Adulamite. An Adulamite is someone who lives in Adula. So there you have it, folks. We give you really priceless truths over here at Sagemont Church. He lives in a town called Adula. We know it's a Canaanite town. 
you will see this begins the downward spiritual spiral because this Israelite who's supposed to influence the Canaanites is influenced by the Canaanites. So this is going to get him into trouble. Well, he finds a friend there named Hira. The Canaanite man's name is Hira. Then verse 2, Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he took her and went into her. Now that's a biblical euphemism, went into her. It meant he had physical relations with her. It's cleaned up a little bit. But that's what it says. So listen, it's getting really, hey, there's Paul. Excuse me, folks. I'm just catching up. God bless you, Paul. I got to see Wilma. Uh, Paul's wife works at this assisted living facility. She's a doll. And Paul, on the other hand, is not. Uh, you know, he's, he's one of them Marines. And anyway, I'm glad to see you, brother. Wonderful to have you here. And we used to be friends. So I have no, oh yeah, so listen to this. He doesn't only go, go and settle in the Canaanite place. He takes a Canaanite woman as his wife. Look, this is not a good idea. You know, there's a New Testament principle, Second Corinthians, I think it is, chapter 6. Don't be unequally yoked. A believer's not supposed to marry a non-believer. You know why? It's not fair to either. The value systems are in opposition. It gets to be Sunday morning. The believer wants to go to church. The unbeliever says, I'm not going to church. Boom, you got conflict. Uh, the believer gets an income tax refund and wants to give some to a missionary. The unbeliever says, what? I want to build a new patio. Uh, the believer has a problem with abortion. The unbeliever sees no problem. You know, so God, he's not trying to rain on anyone's parade. He's just trying to be kind and compassionate and save us uh, the adversity of being unequally yoked. So he says, don't. That's in the New Testament. This is a reflection of it. Tell you what I mean. Uh, uh, God said, don't intermarry with the Canaanites in the land. Now, some people take this to be a prohibition on interracial marriage. Those people are wrong. This is not a prohibition on interracial marriage. It has nothing to do with race. It has to do with belief systems that are opposed to one another. The Israelites, covenant people, knowing the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were not to marry Canaanites who worshipped a multiplicity of gods. Now, couples whose marriage is an intermarriage, racial intermarriage, know going into it they're going to face societal challenges. Now, every marriage has challenges, and interracial marriage has new challenges. But that doesn't mean there's a biblical prohibition against it. Now, look, you may have a personal dislike of interracial marriage, and you're entitled to it. You're simply not permitted to make it look like God shares your point of view. The Bible nowhere outlaws interracial marriage. What it outlaws is the, belief, is the uh, partnership between a believer and a non-believer. So uh, just to be a little bold, if you have a prejudice about interracial marriage, you may be bordering on racism. I would be careful if I was you. Again, there may be practical reasons why a couple ought to really think long and hard about an interracial partnership because of the state of affairs of our culture and society. But don't blame that on the Bible. The Bible doesn't outlaw it. The biblical principle is there must be spiritual compatibility in a relationship and nothing to do with skin color or anything like that. Well, there you have it. So uh, then it says in verse 3, she conceived and bore a son and he named him Heir. And boy, that's an appropriate name for this first kid. And then she conceived again and bore a son, named him Onan. Well, she bore still another son, named him Shelah. Now, that's sort of like the boy named Sue. <laughs> Shelah. And it was at Chazib that she bore him. Now, Judah took a wife for Heir, his firstborn. Her name was Tamar. We do not know whether she was an Israelite or a Canaanite because the text does not tell us. What we know is that her name means date palm. 
And the significance of that really escapes me. I have no idea. I mean, there are date palms all through Israel. If you go to Israel, you can see date palms uh, growing even in desert areas. And so they existed in this day. They're quite striking and beautiful. And I guess her parents decided in looking at a date palm, we're going to name our kid Tree. So that's essentially <laughs> all I know about that name. But verse 7, but heir, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the sight of the Lord, so he took his life. Does your translation tell us what the specific evil was that Air committed? Anyone have a Bible? Good, I hope not, because it doesn't tell us, which leads to this. Do you know reading the Bible can be frustrating? Because it only tells us everything God wants us to know. It does not give us everything we wish to know. We're going to have to wait to meet the author face to face one day. There's no fat in the Bible. Everything in it is profitable. And so even though we'd like to know, well, what was so severe about what this guy did that God saw fit to take his life, we don't know. Apparently, God didn't feel it was necessary to tell us. And then verse 8, Judah said to Onan. So Onan is the next brother. He said, go in to your brother's wife. Go into your sister-in-law and perform your duty as a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Now, if you think that is weird, you are right. Man, that is plumb weird for crying out loud. But it wasn't in that day. Not only was this practice widespread amongst the Israelites, it was in the ancient Near East amongst every people group. Uh, uh, The sexuality of it was not the issue. It was to show respect to the deceased brother so as to perpetuate his name and ensure his share of the inheritance would stay in the family. That's how they did it. It was called levirate marriage from the Latin word levir, L-E-V-E-R, which means brother-in-law. And I want to show you something that's quite surprising. You may be surprised to know God regulated this practice. He didn't outlaw it. He actually regulated it. Let me read this to you. Later on in the law of Moses, Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 to 10. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. But if the man does not desire to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to establish a name for his brother in Israel. He's not willing to perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall summon him and speak to him. And if he persists and says, I do not desire to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the sight of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall declare, thus it is done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. In Israel, his name shall be called the house of him whose sandal is removed. That's what it says. Major public humiliation. If the brother of a deceased brother does not fulfill this duty to go into the widow of his brother, provide a son in whose name the deceased brother's name and inheritance would continue and remain in the family. Now, this is a great illustration of how not every biblical practice is to continue in each day. Every biblical principle is for every day and time, but not every biblical practice. And the way you figure it out is read the text in the context 
Otherwise, you're prone to pick and choose, for instance, ladies wearing head coverings, not having short hair, you know, all this stuff. That's a biblical practice. Sacrificing unblemished male lambs on the altar. Most of us don't do that. In Pearland, we don't do that. I know that for sure. But that's a biblical practice. The practice doesn't continue, but the principle does. What's the principle? Blood atonement. Well, of course, the ultimate lamb is the Lord Jesus. So those early practices are meant to exemplify the principle which continues, you see. So this practice does not continue today, but principles behind it do. Now look what happened in verse 9. Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So when he went into his brother's wife, he wasted his seed on the ground in order not to give offspring to his brother. By the way, I should tell you, verse 9 is what we're going to use as our theme verse for Vacation Bible School <laughs> this year. So, moly. I'm just reading the text, folks. I'm just reading what it says. Well, what he did was displeasing in the sight of the Lord, and so he took his life also. Oh, boy. Now, what did he do? He said, you know what? I could have sexual relations with this gal and gratify myself without the responsibility thereof. I'm not going to father a child through her because then I'll have to split my portion of inheritance with that kid. I do not want to fulfill my responsibilities to that kid nor to her. Therefore, I, I will spill my seed on the ground. So this is a sexual relationship without responsibility. Man, there's a lot of that going around. Uh, That's the part God didn't like. Some people say uh, Onan was punished because he made use of an early form of birth control. You see? And some people say birth control of any kind means distrust of God. Well, now, you can believe what you want to. It's a matter of Christian liberty. A Christian couple has to work this out for themselves. But I do not think that's what's being said at all. Uh, I find no clear, maybe you do. I'm just telling you, I don't find any clear verse of Scripture that prohibits legitimate means of birth control. I didn't say you have to use them. Uh, You work it out with your your partner, your spouse. But, but, But I don't think you can show me a verse of Scripture that militates against birth control, except the means of birth control, which is, in effect, a form of abortion. Well, that we know. That's a no-brainer. That's not acceptable. Other forms, uh, this one is still practiced today, the one that Onan practiced. I don't think, therefore, God was displeased with uh, Onan's recourse to a form of birth control. I think he was displeased with his selfishness and unwillingness to provide what he should have for his deceased brother's wife. Well, it goes on. You know, uh, this chapter, if anyone tells you, well, I would read the Bible, but it's boring, you want to recommend Genesis 38. (laughs) You just want to take them right here. Skip everything. Go to Genesis 38. Oh, my. You don't fall asleep reading this. So verse 11, then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house. You know what he's saying? Be gone. I don't want to mess with you. Your father should be responsible for Remain a widow in that day, totally dependent on daddy. You will not marry or anything like that. Move out because I just don't want to be bothered. So you remain a widow in your Father's house until my son Shelah grows up. You know what he's doing there? He's lying to his daughter-in-law. He's saying, you know, Sheila, he's just a young kid right now. But give him a couple years and he'll be marriageable. And then you can take him and he'll fulfill his responsibility to perpetuate, you know, uh, his deceased brother's memory and inheritance and all that kind of stuff. Uh, But he doesn't have any intention to do that. You know why? He says, uh, there's something about this woman, Tamar. Anyone married to her has a really short life expectancy. (laughs) Don't know if it's her cooking or what, but this lady is toxic. 
two of the boys died. I'm not willing to chance it on the third. And see, so it says here, for he thought, I'm afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. You know what Judah's doing? He is totally overlooking the evil and sin of his sons. And he's putting it all on, ta- uh, on Tamar's back. We really lose objectivity, don't we, when it comes to our own kids. They're the rascals who committed uh, deeds of evil for which God took their lives. But the daddy can't recognize it whatsoever. He puts it on Tamar. and He doesn't want her. She has cooties or something. And he, he doesn't want her to infect his only surviving son. So verse 12, after a considerable time, she was daughter, the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of mourning was ended, Judah went up to his sheep shearers at Timnah, he and his friend, Hira the Adulamite. So here's what happened. He's grieving the loss of his wife. Normal. Period of mourning. He's hurting emotionally, as you can imagine. But a time of celebration comes up. Sheep shearing. The Canaanites made it a big celebration. It was party time. It was wine, women, and song. Where'd the women come from? Well, the Canaanites believed that during the celebration of sheep shearing, if you have relations with prostitutes who made themselves available at this time, temple prostitutes, uh, then you would arouse the interest of the gods to impregnate the earth with good crops for the next season. So their intercourse would encourage the fertility gods to plant their seed in the earth. Can you see why God said to Israel, don't take on their ways, be holy as I am. You see why he says to us, be in the world, but not of the world. You see? So this is some bad stuff. Now look. I sympathize, so do you. I know with Judah, he's distraught emotionally. He lost his spouse. He feels alone, depressed. He may be angry at God and all the rest. So that makes him quite susceptible at this time to enter into relationships he should not. But though we ought to be sympathetic still, he really had no business going up to the party at this time. All he had to do is decline the invitation. Instead, he fully participated. He even brought his friend over here with him to the, to the city. You know, there's some things you just don't do. You just don't go to because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so what happens is that he goes up there, and uh, verse 13, it was told Tamar, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garments. These were special garments to let everyone know. Treat with courtesy, respect, and sensitivity this lady because she's a widow. She removed those garments and she covered herself with a veil. Like you see in the Middle East today, some ladies are covered in all areas except maybe just the eyes. It was an ancient form of modesty still practiced today in certain places. So she covered herself with a veil and wrapped herself and sat in the gateway of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that Sheila had grown up and she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot, for she had covered her face. So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here now, let me come in to you. For he didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, what, 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 what do you give me that she may come into me? Uh, I do not think this was planned by Judah. I, I call this an unplanned stop on the road of life. It's the unplanned stops you and I really have to watch out for. I don't think he woke up in the morning and conspired. Uh, to find a way whereby he could have relations with a prostitute. I don't think so. It just, you've heard people say this, it just happened. You know what? So we got to watch out for what may just happen. Unplanned stops. Why do I call this an unplanned stop? I'll tell you why. She says, what will you give me that you may come into me? Verse 17, he said, I'll send you a goat. 
I guess the prostitute union had not been established yet. A goat from the flock. She said, no, 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 give, give me a pledge until you send it. Okay, here's the deal. This tells me he didn't go up there with credit cards. He couldn't make payment. He said, trust me, payment's on the way. Check's in the mail. Goat's coming. This tells me this was an unplanned stop, which leads me to this. I'll give you a formula for disaster. Here it is. Desire. Every one of us here from time to time has desires that cannot be righteously satisfied. Desire for someone we shouldn't desire, for stuff, whatever it is. Desire plus opportunity equals disaster. That's how to fail in the Christian life. So I've got to deal with what's on the left side of the equation to avoid what's on the right side. So desire, what does that mean? We know there are times when each of us, sinners, uh, are more susceptible to sin. For instance, simple things. When you're tired, when you're hungry, when you're mad, when you're lonely, when you're angry. You're not obligated to sin, but you're more susceptible to it. Judah's grieving the loss of a wife. The home is empty. It's difficult for him. He has legitimate desires, but he's seeking to satisfy them illegitimately. So what's my advice to deal with the desire part of the equation? Give yourself permission to have your legitimate desires satisfied legitimately. What does that mean? Say no to certain things. Take a break. Do what's fun. Get rest. Eat. Exercise if you're into that. Don't feel like every need beckons for your attention. No, no, no. Only the Lord Jesus is omnipresent and omnipotent. You and I are very limited human beings. We're subject to colds and flus and fatigue and depression and all this other kind of stuff. And all those emotional issues make us susceptible to bad decisions. So I'll just admit to you, even though I'm a minister, there was an old day when it was thought ministers have to be on duty 24 hours a day. You should be out every night visiting people. Well, those ministers largely produced a crop of kids who hate God and the church. Because the minister embraced the church family while neglecting his own family. And I just determined, you know, I don't, I, I'm going to run the risk of offending certain church members by saying, sorry, I can't help you with that. Or sorry, I can't be available to that. Because I'm not going to miss one baseball game a child or grandchild's involved in. I'm not going to miss one appointment at a doctor. I'm not going to miss one dance recital. I would rather be fired. Then neglect those things. And that way, also, I don't go out every night. There are certain nights I shut down. I consider it a spiritual activity. It's not selfish. It's not laziness. I just want to be rested and healthy for the next day so that the next day I'm not prone to make an unplanned stop. You know this? You deserve a break today. I can get a break with Tamar along the side of the road. I deserve a break. To, I don't want to get to that point where I'm so needy of an illegitimate form of refreshment that I'm prone to it. So that's how I deal with the desires. I ask myself almost every day when I get up, how am I feeling today? If the answer is I'm angry, I'm lonely, I'm disgusted, I'm hungry, I'm burnt out, I'm tired, then I know, oh God, please help me today. Keep me from unplanned stops, from opportunities, because the desire is already there. Please keep me from the opportunity. I'm just, I'm admitting this to you. You know, now those people, Christians, ministers, who say this never, you know, I'm not susceptible to that. They make me nervous. Yes, they are. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I'm just saying don't provide an opportunity for the flesh. So that's one thing. Now the opportunity... That's easy. The New Testament says uh, no temptation has come our way beyond what we could, what's common and what we can deal with because with it, God's provided the way out. Well, the way out of the opportunity for Judah is don't go. Don't go to, you know, there's just certain things. You just, you know, this is just a recommendation. I would avoid 
uh, uh, pornographic sites on the computer online. This is just a suggestion. It's a free country. It's probably not a good idea. I, I would watch who you're looking at for how long. I would be careful about who you're touching and how. Men, I don't think there's ever a legitimate reason for you to be alone uh, with a woman who is not your wife. Why does that mean you or she or planning? No, but it could be an unplanned stop if your emotions are unsettled. Don't you see? You're more vulnerable. So the way to protect yourself is just not. I remember I was counseling with a lady, uh, not here, at another place. This was many years ago at the end of the session. I was brilliant, I got to tell you. I was just amazed. <laughs> anyway, she said, that's very helpful. I'd like to give you a hug. So she came at me. I said, well, uh, I, I'd rather not do that. And she said, uh, well, 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 why not? I said, look here, lady. Uh, there's a lot of good huggers out there. Uh, you can go find one. If you want a good counselor, that's me. But you're not get, I'm not a good hugger. That's not going to happen. You, so you've got to be careful. Now, what if on that day uh, I felt unloved by my wife? I was disgusted with you people. I was hungry. And tired, and she offered me a hug. My goodness, unplanned stop. I didn't plan that at the beginning of the day, but don't you see? So I'm, I'm, uh, I'm careful because I do not trust me. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So uh, we could learn something here from Judah's misdeed. So she said, give me a play. He said, I'll send you a goat. Essentially, he says, the check is in the mail. She said, uh, give me some more assurance. He said, verse 18, what pledge shall I give you? She said, your seal and your cord. What does that mean? The seal was a cylindrical piece, metal or stone, attached around someone's neck with a cord. That, That would be like their signet ring. They would impress it upon wax. That's their ID card, so to speak. She says, give me your Texas driver's license. That's essentially what you, I want want your photo ID. That's what that, and furthermore, she said, and your staff that's in your hand. Now, why does she want a stick, a walking stick? Remember, because they would carve it in those days with identifying information, name, address, serial number, stuff like that. So she now had, Forms of identification. He's carried away by the moment, by the moment, you know. Listen, I'm going to tell you something, guys, but women too. You can't get too close to the line you're not supposed to cross over because we can tip over it real easy. A better thing to do is to draw the line in the sand way far back because at this point, he really couldn't say no to her. He's even... Uh, He's committing intellectual suicide. I'm going to give you my ID? That's what he does because lust has taken over. So the way you want to draw the line in the sand way back, way, way, way back over here because you should never trust yourself. That's a mistake. Oh, my goodness. You know this idea, believe in yourself? Are you crazy? <laughs> believe in yourself? You are a mess. Me too. Now, God loves us, and he'll take us, though we're messed up because we're sin abounds, grace superabounds. I got all that, but he's the one we lean on, not any confidence in the flesh. But anyway, okay, so that's what you want. And he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. Then, verse 19, she arose and departed and removed her veil and put on her widow's garments. Now, when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite. Now, look at that. He's realizing, oh, my goodness, this is embarrassing. I don't want to make a trip up there and look for my ID. I'll send my Canaanite friend. The Canaanites are used to this misbehavior. So uh, he, he sends the goat by his friend, the Adulamite, to receive the pledge from the woman's hand. But he didn't find her. And so he, the friend... Asked the men of her place, saying, where's the temple prostitute who was by the road at Nai? But they said, well, uh, there's been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah, and he said, I didn't find her. 
Furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no temple prostitute here. And so Judah said, I'll tell you what, let her keep them. Otherwise, we'll become a laughing stock. After all, I mean, I sent the young goat, but you, you couldn't find her. He says, you know what? Let her have my ID. I'll just tell folks I lost my wallet. And I'll apply for a new Social Security card, new drivers. I'm not going to go through the humiliation. That's essentially what he's doing over here. And so verse 24, now it was about three months later. So we fast forward three months. Uh, and Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, has played the harlot. Behold, she's also with child by harlotry. She's at the end of the first trimester. She's probably showing at this time. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. You know what I find uh, interesting? We are all too ready to see the full force of God's justice and judgment befall others for their misdeeds while at the same time pleading with him for mercy with regard to our own misdeeds. Don't you find that to be weird? He who has committed all kinds of sin wants to rush her to the stake and burn her alive. And what's even more striking about this is that burned bodies was rare under the law of Moses. It was reserved for certain categories of sexual sin, like if you had relations with your wife and your wife's mother, then the penalty was to be burned. I'm not making this up. That's what it says in Leviticus. Uh, Or if A priest's daughter was promiscuous. She could be burned in the fire. But the typical penalty was not burning. It was stoning. Now, look at this. Judah is requiring a more degrading penalty than even the law of Moses later would require. Isn't it interesting how we could be blind, in his case, to the sins of his son, Sons and his own sin and pinned it on somebody else. It's easy for us as Christians to get repulsed with political leaders, Hollywood people, politicians, I don't know, others who are involved in all kinds of crazy stuff and want their heads, figuratively speaking. But folks, we're no different. I have the same nature as they did. I probably have not manifested my same the, the sinful inclinations in the same way, but they is me and I is them. The one I'm different from is God. I share the sinful nature of every sinner. I do not share the nature of God except by his grace. Folks, we got to be a little more merciful. Instead of crying out for the full weight of God's justice, we ought to cry out, oh, God, be merciful to that one, a sinner, just as you have been merciful to this one, a sinner. But Judah doesn't do that. He wants her head burned on a stake. So it says in verse 25, it was while she was being brought out, she's about ready to be burned, she sent to her father-in-law saying, I'm with child by the man to whom these things belong. Folks, if this was a TV series, right now you'd hear this. Dun, dun, dun. I mean, that would be the climax. It would be like freeze. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cards and staff are these. My goodness, she pulls out his photo ID. She says, my, this bears a striking resemblance to you, dad-in-law. Oh, my heavens, she got him. And it says here, he didn't have relations with her again. I think that's an implication of repentance. Judah's us. He sinned. And you can repent from sin. He did not repeat this practice. He did not have relations with her again. Can I tell you something that's weird about us? When we sin, we think, well, since I've already gone this far, I might as well go all the way. But that's not true. When we sin, we could say, oh, God, I confess that I've sinned. I turn from it to you for forgiveness and strength to keep me from doing it again. You know, those who struggle with alcohol and drugs, as I've told you, I once did. I'll tell you what we do. 
we have a period of sobriety and then we regress, we relapse. We do it on purpose. I mean it. Uh, um, we're emotionally unsettled. We take that one drink. Okay, we relapsed. But we don't stop at the one drink. We say, you know, I've already, I'm, I already did this. How about two, three, four? And we go on a binge. That's what we'll do. Human nature is so tricky. We deceive ourselves. What's wrong with saying, oh, man, I slipped. I took this one drink. Oh, God, help me. I'm leaning on it more than you. I, I need some help. I'm going to get some help. I don't want to take the second drink. See what, I'm, see what I mean? So Judah, to his credit, uh, though he engaged in terrible, degrading sins, still, I think, is moving towards repentance, and we'll see this for sure in later chapters. And, and so he says, uh, verse 26, she is more righteous than I. Now, he's not justifying her behavior. He's saying she was willing to comply with the Leverett marriage provision, but I was not. See? Inasmuch, he says, as I did not give to her my son, Sheila, and he did not have relations with her again. Now, verse 27, this gets interesting. It came about at the time she was giving birth. Behold, there were twins in her womb. Moreover, it took place while she was giving birth. One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. Why is it important to mark which twin was birthed first? Well, there were special blessings for the firstborn as far as inheritance, leadership in the family, and all the rest. So this makes sense, but something weird happens here. Verse 29, but it came about as he drew back his hand. Can you get this? One of the twins sticks out his hand. (laughs) The midwife latches onto it and ties a cord, color red. And then he he goes back in. Weird. I'm just trying to, and then it says, it came about as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. It's kind of like roller derby, you know, where they're, and so the other brother came out, and she, the midwife said, what a breach you have made for yourself. So he was named Perez, Perez. Perez is a Hebrew word for breach. Literally, it says, what a breach you have breached for yourself. In other words, Perez, good night. Somehow you squeezed out ahead of the firstborn. So you're the one who actually, as a total body, came out before this one. So the midwife says, your name will be Perez. Afterward, his brother came out. You know, the one who had the scarlet thread on his hand. He was named Zira. So uh, this is a strange chapter. This chapter is laden with illustrations of human nature. You're seeing humankind at their worst. Male, female, Israelite, Canaanite, does not matter. But if we look carefully, we'll see what emanates from this chapter is a glaring illustration of the sovereign grace of God. Let me illustrate. In the New Testament, there are two genealogies with regard to the Messiah, Jesus, his messianic line. One's in Matthew, one is in Luke. I would like to read to you an excerpt first from Matthew's genealogy. It's in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Here's what it says. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah, and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Are you kidding me? A child who is the product of an incestuous relationship ends up in the messianic line. There you find mention of Judah and Tamar and Perez and Zerah. Where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Let me read to you from Luke's genealogy, chapter 3, verse 33. The son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah. 
Not only did God not strike them from the record because of their sin, he put them in the messianic record to show us something. Nobody's sin, not Judah's, not Tamar's, not yours, not mine, can interfere with God's intent to send a redeemer into the world to save us from sins. Look at here. We know Messiah is to come from the tribe of Judah. Judah produces a son, heir, but he's killed. Satan says, yay, I have interrupted the line of Messiah. Ah, but there's a second son, Onan, but he's killed. Now Satan says, yay, wiped out the second son, which interferes with God's plan to send a redeemer. No, though God does not condone the means by which the child was born, God made use of it so that through this relationship, illicit though it was, between Judah and Tamar, a son was born from whom would ultimately come the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, nothing, nobody can interfere with the sovereign grace of God. You sin greatly. So do I. We are Judah and all these other people. But when we're at our worst, God's at his best. He insisted on sending the Messiah. And I want to read this last verse for you. It's in the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. One of the elders said to me, said to John, stop weeping. <coughs> Excuse me. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Who do you think that's a reference to? That's Jesus. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. Look at this. Last book of the Bible. A reference to Jesus. The lion who is from the tribe of Judah. Judah, this rascal whose sins are put on display in Genesis 38 is still the one from whose line Messiah would come. Good night. If Judah couldn't mess up the plan of God by his sin, neither can you or I. Don't give yourself that much credit. Though we be unfaithful, he remains faithful. Now, that doesn't mean he condones the misbehavior. I did not say that. That doesn't mean there's no consequence for sin. I did not say that. I just said this. God is intent on sending the Redeemer into the world to redeem sinners. For he desires that none perish, but that all be saved. That's the intent of Almighty God. One other thing. Some are born in an untimely and unfortunate way. Some are the products of rape or incest. And some are prone to see those infants as being a mistake. Some even find permission to end the life of those infants. No, 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 no. The infant is not the mistake. The timing and means of conception was surely a mistake. I got that. But the infant, regardless of the nature of the birth, is still fully created in the image of God and could grow by his grace to be adopted into his family and in the embrace of a heavenly father who will never abuse or exploit that child. My heavens, there's no such thing as an inferior, defective being. Now we're all conceived in sin. I got that. But one is not of more worth than another on the basis of pedigree or nature of birth. Once again, God does not condone misbehavior. Sin is a problem, not the child who is born as a result of the sin of adults. You see what I mean? So be very, very careful of that. And folks, the one born under undesirable circumstances may be experiencing Incest and abuse and all the rest has no hope except the hope of adoption into the family of God whereby God becomes not only that child's father but heavenly husband. The two protectors that child never had and that's true of all of us. And he calls us little children. We get the dad 
we never had. Though we may have been biologically in the first birth produced under less than desirable circumstances, the second birth erases all that's gone before and we become chosen and royal and a people for God's own possession one day to stand in his midst. So you may be devaluing yourself because your roots are ones you're ashamed of. Well, you got new roots. <laughs> the Lion of Judah, who is from the root of David and the tribe of Judah, if you've accepted him, he's taken you just as you are and will never, never let you go. Don't degrade or devalue yourself when God says, I've lifted you up, you're mine, and I will never leave you or forsake you. Don't try to argue God out of the favor which he has bestowed upon you. You won't win. You won't win. He says nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. That's what he says. So this is a great chapter. Now, the good news of Genesis 38 is that it ends. <laughs> and we get to Genesis 39. So there you go. So thanks for listening. Uh, go home and teach this to your children. <laughs> don't, don't, don't be too strong on the illustrations. Just, you know, a few things. Stick, stick figures. <laughs> I'll tell you why. Uh, one of the reasons I believe the Bible is inspired in God's word. See, if it was fraudulent, you sugarcoat it. If it's the real deal, God does not present a sugarcoated picture of us he really tells it like it is genesis 38 is a mirror into our soul this is the extent to which our sin nature uh, could lead us this is a mark of inspiration it's an honest revelation from a god who knows us better than we know ourselves lord jesus thank you for everything we're only partially discovering the blessings with which you have blessed us I suppose it'll take an eternity for us to fully appreciate all that you've done, are doing, and will do. Thank you for your patience. You are long-suffering. Thank you that you do not see sin to be the problem. You see refusal of your sacrifice for our sin to be the problem. You have a solution for our sin. It's to take Jesus as sin-bearer. Thank you for sending the Redeemer Thank you for not allowing Satan or Judah or Tamar or us, in spite of the way we are, to interfere with your intent to redeem those who accept you as Savior. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being intent on it. Thank you for rescuing us, if we will, from our own sin, the penalty, presence, and power thereof. Thank you for your honesty and authenticity in revealing to us what human nature looks like and what your divine nature in contrast looks like. Lord Jesus, we love you. Here's the reason, because you have first loved us. This we pray in your name, amen. Well, God bless you folks. Please uh, note the fact that we're getting out 12 minutes early. Yes, there you go. Isn't that wonderful? One minute for each of the tribes of Israel. <laughs>